discussion of pre-tribulational anemometism, we began by looking at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where John wrote, After these things I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. This passage, as we understand it, has profound implications for the doctrine of enemomatism. This passage, if taken at face value, will significantly impact the timing of the Lord's return. John indicates that he saw an innumerable multitude. This innumerable multitude suggests the number of people that God intends to save is humongous. The innumerability suggested by this passage severely handicaps any position that argues that the Lord's return can happen at any moment or is imminent at any time in human history. The Lord's return can only be imminent when a significant number of individuals have been born physically and who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, which of course makes possible the fulfillment of this text. It is my belief that the doctrine of election exposes the Achilles heel of pre-tribulational rapture in emomatism. Pre-tribulationalists insist that there are no events that must happen before the Lord's return for his own. We call it the church. Yet the overwhelming, or rather the outworking of the process that brings an elect individual to express faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary is, quote-unquote, a divine must. And that must controls the timing of the return of Jesus Christ to earth to receive his own, the elect. The Lord Jesus records in John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that do not come from this sheepfold. I must bring them too, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. Close quote. Now, the statement, I have other sheep that do not come from this sheepfold, almost certainly refers to Gentiles. Jesus has sheep in the fold who are Jewish. 
There are other sheep which, while not of the same fold, belong to him also. This recalls the mission of the Son in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which was to save the world, not just the nation of Israel. Such an emphasis would be particularly appropriate to the author, John, if he were writing to a primarily non-Jewish audience. The Net Bible echoes the majority view on the object of the Lord's concern in this verse. Since the Gentiles are the objects of the Lord's concern, the total group must be in view in this verse. Jesus states that his work among the quote-unquote other sheep is a quote-unquote divine must. The verb de, D-E-I, this Greek verb expresses the character of necessity or compulsion in an event. I must bring them to, the text says, and this signals a divine imperative that is couched in the same language as the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross. You can compare Luke chapter 24, verse 7 and verse 26. Here is a divine must that explicitly contradicts pre-tribulational enimomatism. The gathering of, quote-unquote, other sheep spreads out over two centuries and still counting. The salvation of every elect individual is as certain as is the deity of Christ. Nothing, including the salvation of every elect individual, uh, can not, nothing, including the Lord's return to rapture the church, can prevent the salvation of one elect person. As I said, Revelation 7-9 informs us that the total number of God's elect to salvation is a number physically impossible for a single person to count. Such a number, even if, even if totaled several million, certainly demanded four or five hundred years at a minimum to fulfill. This flies squarely in the face of pre-tribulational enimomatism. The doctrine of election contradicts pre-tribulational enimomatism. Election is the positive side of the doctrine of predestination. Predestination is a doctrine of the Bible that has enjoyed a prominent place among debaters. However, one should understand that the debate is not whether the Bible teaches predestination. It does. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, quote, For he lovingly chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and unblemished in his sight. He did this by predestinating us to adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace that he has freely bestowed on us 
in his dearly loved. Close quote. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans indicate, indicates that predestination is part of a process. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30, quote, And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified, close quote. As stated earlier, the debate does not center on whether or not the Bible teaches predestination. Rather, the question is, what is its meaning? For those who are familiar with the debate, there are several possible positions espoused throughout the community of the saints regarding the meaning of predestination. Central to the debate about the meaning of predestination is the question concerning the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. However, the focus of our discussion is not the meaning of predestination per se, but the when and the so what of predestination as it relates to pre-tribulational Inimomatism. The term predestination is composed of two parts. The prefix pre, which is time, that means before. In other words, it's a prefix of time that means before. Destination is a noun that refers to a place or goal. In biblical jargon, predestination concerns the question regarding the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will in the matter of personal salvation. We, however, are using predestination in a more narrow sense to refer to what God did or did not do with respect to each man's ultimate destiny before birth. Election describes the positive side of predestination, which describes those God chose for salvation while reprobation refers to those left to damnation due to their sin in Adam. Now, obviously, there's a central question. The basic issues concern the relationship between God, the creator, and man, the creature. Scripture declares that the creator is sovereign over his creation. Notice Romans chapter 9, verse 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For he has ever, 
for who has ever resisted his will? But who indeed are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Does what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use? But what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he is willing to make known the wealth of his glory on the objects of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and I will call her who was unloved, my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out on behalf of Israel, though the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth completely and quickly, just as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord's armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, and we have resembled Gomorrah. Close quote. However, Scripture also affirmed the creature's choice. Notice Romans chapter 8, chapter 1, verse 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Based on the two passages that I just read, it would seem that both are true. Man has a choice and God is sovereign. Now, how can this be? There have been many attempted solutions that basically move across a rather broad spectrum. On the one hand, you have choice. On the opposite extreme, you have sovereign. So you have choice and sovereign. Those are the options. Are they mutually exclusive or do they somehow abide together? 
There are extremes in all camps. Those who are not extremists, but place greater emphasis on the choice of man to the exclusion of God's sovereignty, we will label advocates of general sovereignty. This is a category heading taken from the book Predestination and Free Will, edited by David and Randall Basinger. In the middle are those who advocate that man has choice and God is sovereign. For those who advocate this position, the relationship between choice and sovereignty is a mystery. At the other end of the spectrum are those who would advocate the absolute sovereignty of God to the exclusion of man's choice. These we will label advocates of specific sovereignty. In philosophical circles, the terms used to describe the two camps that compose this debate are labeled determinist and indeterminist. The shared trait among those in the determinist camp is the idea that every human choice has causal influences which incline the will to move in one direction over against another. Put simply, one is able to trace every action of man back to a cause. Therefore, since the influences are so great, it makes the outcome certain. Indeterminists, on the other hand, argue that a person can always do otherwise. There are no influences so powerful so as to make a person do one thing and one thing only. There are always uninfluenced choices. In theological circles, as it relates to salvation, the terms used to describe the two camps, Calvinists and Arminians. On a spectrum, Calvinists emphasize the sovereignty of God in salvation, while the Arminians emphasize the choice of man. Now, no camp is a monolith. Each camp has variations within it. Therefore, when we speak of specific sovereignty, deterministic Calvinists, SSDC, or general sovereignty, indeterministic Arminians, GSIA, please understand that there are multiple emphases in each camp. This oversimplification is purely intended to assist you in understanding the debate. Four different perspectives on the question concerning the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the choice of man are the essence of our discussion. It is also the essence of a book, Predestination and Free Will. In the book, the men try to help the average layperson grasp the debate. We shall present the views 
of three of the contributing authors to that book to serve as our basis for understanding this important truth across the evangelical community. Specific sovereignty, deterministic Calvinists. This first group we shall examine concerns those who subscribe to a deterministic view of the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's choice. This view states that there is no question of God's absolute sovereignty in all matters. However, they grant that the impact God's sovereignty has on man's free will is a matter for debate. Determinist, God ordains what he wants. This is one camp among those who believe in a very specific sovereignty, but are deterministic and thus Calvinist. John S. Feinberg defines his position first. Descriptively, we assign it the label specific sovereignty, soft, deterministic, moderately Calvinistic. In respect to the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will, Feinberg argues a rather strong view of God's sovereignty and a weak view of man's free will. Feinberg argues that God is certainly sovereign, but he does not force men to act against their wills. Rather, man's will is inclined to move in a certain direction by causal influences. Feinberg writes, quote, God can guarantee that his goals will be accomplished freely even when someone does not want to do the act, because the decree includes not only God's chosen end, ends, but also the means to such ends. Such means include whatever circumstances and factors are necessary to convince an individual, without constraint, that the act God has decreed is the act she or he wants to do. And given the sufficient conditions, the person will do the act. Close quote. God in his wisdom knows the causal influences necessary for each situation. He has decreed them to accomplish his will. For Feinberg, as it relates to individual salvation, God is definitely in the driver's seat. That is, believers are predestined to salvation in accord with the purpose of God, and God does all things including predestining to salvation according to the counsel of his will. According to Feinberg, Scripture speaks Quote, of God's sovereign control, not only over election to salvation, but over all else, close quote. In the Reformed tradition, Feinberg maintains that as the foreseen actions or merits of God's creatures determines his choices, 
Feinberg maintains that scripture indicates that what occurs is foreordained by God and nothing external to God, such as the foreseen actions or merits of God's creatures, determines his choices. In Feinberg's view, the sovereignty of God takes precedence over man's free will. Within the same camp, there's also those who are deterministic, but they would say that God ordained what he knows. This, in, this is in contrast to Feinberg, who would say God ordain, ordains what he wants. Norman Geisler would argue that God ordains what he knows. Geisler articulates a view that is similar to Feinberg, but with certain differences. We labeled Geisler's view specific sovereignty, self-deterministic, moderately Calvinistic. In response to the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will, Geisler articulates a strong view of man's free will, but a soft view of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, but he willed only what man would will. Geisler explains, quote, Perhaps God's predestination is neither based on his foreknowledge of human free choices, nor done in spite of it. The scriptures, for example, declares that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. That is to say, there is no chronological or logical priority of election and foreknowledge. As a simple being, all of God's attributes are one with his individual essence. Hence, both foreknowledge and predestination are one in God. Thus, whatever God knows, he determines, and whatever he determines, he knows. Close quote. Geisler's point is that God does not process information. Rather, all things are simultaneous with him. In this sense, one cannot really speak of God's foreknowledge. There is no before and after in the knowledge of God. Quote, For what we have, are, and will choose is present to God in his eternal now. Close quote. Since God knows what he determines and determines what he knows, Geisler insists, quote, Humans are the first cause of their own moral actions, close quote. God's decree simply makes reality what man would do. For Geisler, God made free will and man wills freely. Salvation seen in light of Geisler's view puts salvific faith in the category of a non-meritorious work of man. Man does it 
but he gets no credit for doing it. Geisler writes, quote, We do not initiate salvation, and we cannot attain it, but we can and must receive it. Salvation is an unconditional act of God's election. Our faith is not a condition for God's giving salvation, but it is for our receiving it. Nevertheless, the act of faith, free choice, by which we receive salvation is not meritorious. It is the giver who gets credit for the gift, not the receiver. Close quote. Geisler argues that God has determined what he knows man would do. This is Geisler's view, which protects the free will of man, but requires a softer view of the sovereignty of God. The second category, Arminian or Arminianism, we're going to label general sovereignty indeterministic Arminian. Opposite Feinberg and Geisler's determinism is Clark Pinnock's indeterminism. Indeterminists focus to a much greater degree on the absolute freedom of man to the exclusion of God's sovereignty. Indeterministic. In other words, Pinnock would argue that God ordains what he hopes. Instead of ordaining what he wants or ordaining what he knows, Pinnock argues that God ordains what he hopes. Pinnock's view is a significant departure from the views of Feinberg and Geisler. Thus, we have labeled his view general sovereignty, indeterministic Arminianism. In respect to the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will, he argues free will demands that man's freedom must be respected and not overruled by God. Pinnock writes, quote, as creator of the world, God is sovereign in the fundamental sense. He has chosen to bring into existence a world with significant free agents. In keeping with this decision, God rules over the world in a way that sustains and does not negate its character and structures. Since freedom has been created, reality is open, not closed. God's relationship to the world is dynamic, not static. Close quote. That is, God created the world but has very little control over it. As such, God is not all-knowing. He only knows what people have done and what he wishes they would do. But, like his creation, God must wait until the choice is made before he knows the outcome of each and every choice. 
relative to salvation, God provided the means, but, quote, an individual may opt out of God's plan of salvation and grieve God's heart, close quote. Pinnock protects the free will of man. Now, what then are are our options with regard to how salvation comes about in the lives of the saved? There are three options. God chose for us, Feinberg's view. We chose for ourselves, but get no credit for the choice, Geisler's view. Or we chose for ourselves, and we take all the credit, Pinnock's view. The Apostle Paul declared in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, quote, He, that is God the Father, chose us, believers, in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Close quote. The verse clearly indicates that God made a choice. The exact nature of that choice engenders much debate. That God made a choice is beyond debate. Therefore, I dismiss Pinnock's position summarily. In our understanding, to opt out of God's plan involves more than merely turning down the offer of salvation. A truly moral agent who is free should have the freedom to completely opt out of the program. To refuse God's offer of salvation only to damn oneself is not true freedom. True freedom, free will, would have the right to completely opt out of the limited choices God's, God offers. If one does not want to go to heaven or hell, there should be another option. Therefore, just how free is one who can only pick from A or B? This is the basis of our rejection of Clark Pinnock's view. Similarly, we reject Geisler's view. Geisler plays word games. Geisler states, quote, it is the giver who gets the credit for the gift, not the receiver, close quote. No one debates that it is true that the credit for the gift must accord to the giver. The debate centers on who takes the credit for the reception of the gift. Man does receive the gift of salvation, but both the act of receiving and the choice to receive are the works of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 states, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The right to become goes before to believe, which goes before to receive. One can only receive after believing. To believe is a right that comes from God. The term exousia can be translated freedom or right or ability, power, 
and also authority, a warrant. Regardless of how one translates the term in John chapter 1, verse 12, the word, which is Jesus, gave the right or the freedom or the authority to become children of God. However one translates the term, whatever it represents, God gave it to man. The right, freedom, or authority involves becoming a child of God. To become means to become something you were not before. This is clearly a divine process. The process of becoming a child of God involves preaching, hearing, believing, and calling. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. In John's gospel, receiving and believing are the same. Therefore, to receive God's gift is as much a work of God as is preaching, hearing, and calling. Geisler's decision to separate out receiving from preaching, hearing, and calling is more presupposition than exposition. Therefore, we are clearly in opinion or in agreement with the opinion of Feinberg that the sovereignty of God is or takes precedence over human free will in the act of salvation. The doctrine of election is a critically important doctrine. It should be clearly understood by those who follow Jesus Christ. It is particularly important in our discussion about the timing of the rapture because the doctrine of election is so sure it will happen. God has elect all over the world in all generations sufficient to make up a number that no man can number personally. This is a very, very important understanding and we definitely need to understand it.